0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I am continuing my mini-series on fascism and the environment uh, with a special guest. Uh, The special guest is Professor Diana Garvin, who is a professor of Italian at the University of Oregon. Her work covers the confluence of gender, food policies, environmental policies, and citizens' relationships with the Italian state. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Cool. Um, Yeah. So just to start out here, I'm wondering if you could give listeners a, you know, a a synopsis, uh, a little spiel about your work, about, you know, recent books or articles that you've been producing.
1: I use food as a lens to look at politics and power, and specifically, I look at how faith, Zones of food production, so things like fields and factories, and food consumption, private kitchens, play into these day-to-day negotiations for power between individual women and the state.
0: So, uh, so, 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 your work is primarily about women's relationship to the Italian state as well.
1: That was the topic of my first book, um, which mm-hmm. just came out with University of Toronto Press. Oh,
0: congratulations! Um,
1: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> It's great to see it finally existing. So it's um, Feeding Fascism, the Politics of Women's Food Work. And in that book, I look at the confluence of women's food production and reproduction. Because the fascist regime turned to women to essentially save the economy. Um, And in order to do so, it asked them to send their production of two autarkic products so basically, made in Italy, but on steroids, into hyperdrive, and those products were food and infants.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. uh, so, how how did the how did the fascist state relate to these two products? Like, like were they sort of like equivalent in their heads? Like, you know, like infants are a product that we need people to produce. Like, were they thinking about it in those terms?
1: It was the oddest thing. Um, this is essentially how eugenics. Um, so. Manipulation of the current generation to produce um, sort of an uber human works. Um, they attempted to change what Italians and particularly what breastfeeding mothers were eating um, in order to build this bigger, better body politic. And in my book, I argue that this project worked in tandem with autarky. Um, so that is basically all Italian products all the time. It's um, increasing the production of foodstuffs uh, that are made in Italy and also encouraging Italians to engage with only those foods. So cutting out other countries with trade sanctions. And essentially what this means is that all labor that takes place in Italy, whether that is labor in the sense of working in a factory or the more, the older version of labor. So childbirth, Um, basically anything that is produced in Italy, whether it is a chocolate bar or a baby is a product belonging to the state.
0: That's extremely fascinating. So, so, so this is like, this is the Italian state saying like, okay, well, we need Italian people to make Italian food to make increasingly Italian people who will make increasingly Italian food. Like, like.
1: It, it does feel like an endless cycle. I mean, it's um, I often think of that when I look at research and that uh, tried to manipulate how women were eating while they breastfed or while they were pregnant, um, because it really is kind of the closest food chain that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, um, where the consumer, you know, the baby is physically linked to the mother, the food producer.
0: That's a that's extremely fascinating. So, so um, are we talking about in the in the context of other countries uh, during the 1930s and 40s? You know, there's there's a, a narrative of uh, women entering the workforce or women being required to enter the workforce or women being incentivized to or finding themselves, you know, the freedom to enter the workforce because of men being occupied with the war. Is that a similar story here with with women being tasked with increasing amounts of food production? And if so. You know, was was this experienced as a sort of like freedom and empowerment thing, or was it more sort of like one's duty to the state?
1: Here, there's a really interesting divergence between fascist ideology and what actually happened. So in terms of Mussolini's speeches, in terms of official legislation, the party line was that a woman's place was in the home. Mm-hmm. But economically, that just didn't work. Um, the nation was in a was in a rough financial state, and it needed as many able-bodied adults to be working as possible. Um, and of course, historically, um, many Italian women had worked, whether it was by taking on piecemeal labor in the uh, in the fields. Um, the rice weeders are a famously almost almost entirely female agricultural workforce or whether this was in um, factories in the food sector, the food industry um, also employed a very large number of Italian women. Um, So although the regime may have heralded um, a secondary position for women, um, in reality, it needed, it needed bodies on the assembly line.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so these female workers, are they, are they primarily working in factories or are they in the fields or both?
1: Um, they're actually working in both. Uh, yeah. I looked at some really interesting examples across the board. Um, one of my favorite groups to study are those rice weeders, the mondine. Um So their name comes from the verb mondare to weed. And they were a migrant agricultural workforce who would uh, stream from across northern Italy um, on the, uh, in, usually traveling by stock car uh, in the trains every spring in order to weed the rice patties. And the fascist regime absolutely loved these women. They were everything that an ideal fascist woman appeared to be. Um, they were muscular, florid, high fertility. The only problem was they were almost all socialist, communist, anarchist, (laughs) barely a one of them allied with the fascist cause. Oh,
0: that's hilarious. Uh, And, 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 and I assume extremely, yeah, extremely frustrating for the fascist state. Um. (laughs) But, it all, you know, it also makes sense just, you know, obviously I'm not particularly familiar with the Italian context, but, you know, thinking about the types of workers who were organized relatively early or something like that, that, that you know, that's that's not a huge surprise, I guess. Um, and they were
1: incredibly successful in their organizing, um, in part because the regime um, needed at least a vague image of their approval so badly. Um, but if you look at... Uh, um, letters from these small town officials in the um, in the places where the Mondini were working, there was a near constant state of revolt. They were laying across train tracks. They were bringing down the machinery, the production, um, and they're actually responsible um, for the eight-hour workday in Italy. Oh, wow! Through their strikes,
0: <laughs> that's extremely impressive. Uh, thank you for, for for telling me that. that, that that's super interesting. Um, so we've we, we've talked a lot about the. The people involved in uh, in the story that that you're particularly interested in, in your in your work, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the places. It seems like your work is dealing with uh, the field, the factory, and the home. So when we're talking about agricultural production, like how did the fat like did the fascist state have like an entirely different relationship to agricultural zones or agricultural parts of the country? Like, did they have entirely different policies or was it mostly a continuation of the previous of the, you know, the previous Italian kingdom's policies?
1: It takes some of the previous Italian kingdom's policies and then sends them into hyperdrive. Um, So that push for hyperproductivity that we talked about earlier of the food of the infants, um, that's really what you see in the countryside. And they promised to do it through two methods, um, by introducing new chemicals, um, pesticides into the countryside, and also by bringing in new machinery. Mm -hmm. So you see this both in mainland Italy, um, which was as part of projects of what was called internal colonization, um, particularly with the Pontine Marshes. So Mussolini kind of wrote his own propaganda um, claiming to have drained the pot, the malarial marshes outside of Rome, um, a feat that not even Caesar himself, not even the popes had ever managed. Um, and of course this is not entirely true. And what results is um, a, these, all of these dystopian new towns. Um, so the swamps are drained fields are cleared New towns are established, uh, its names like Sabaudia, Aprilia, all of these, uh, all of these Romes, all of these names meant to evoke the glories of ancient Rome. And the urbanism of these towns is incredibly strange. There's almost always a huge tower. Um, so kind of your classic panopticon, the watchtower that you'd see in a prison. And there are absolutely no trees in these, uh, In um, in these new towns.
0: Wow. Um,
1: it was built as a space utterly without greenery. The reason why is that um, regime architects believed that dissidents would find places to hide and they would do so in nature. So <laughs> they cleared nature. Um, the problem was this worked quite against his one of his main goals for the new towns, which was to move young people away from the so-called sterile cities um, and into the countryside, which was believed to promote, um, fertility, um, with no trees under which young lovers could hide. Um, (laughs) there was very low fertility in the new towns.
0: That's extremely fascinating. Uh, this, uh, you know, hearing about this, like, contradiction that they have between, yeah, the image of nature as, you know, virile and pure and you know a place where where good hail people make good hail families but also it's hard to control and you know pre-modern and you know like like it's a place that needs to be tamed at the same time it 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 sounds like they were like running right up against that tension which is something that you know we see in a lot of fascist movements uh and also you know a lot of just like modern movements in general modern you know modern society's relationship to uh the countryside is something that's like it needs to be managed but it also needs to be preserved as this like one place where where uh where the rules of modernity aren't you know the only thing that's happening that's 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 super fascinating
1: you know what's so interesting is that trope really comes to the fore um when the Italians invade Ethiopia in 1935 and attempt to take over local coffee growing So Ethiopian coffee, which is uh, cafe arabica, is um, one of two varieties of coffee that's most prevalent in the world. It's a very delicate bean. It's uh, high in fat. It's sweeter. It produces subtle aromas, um, particularly compared to um, cafe robusta, um, which is kind of the other big bean in the world. Um, which Italians had already met through immigration to Brazil to work on the Brazilian coffee plantations. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
0: that's that that's the one I'm most familiar with in the Latin American history context, yes. yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So the um basically the Italian fascists attempt to import the growing methods, uh, monoculturing um long rows uh, that do work with cafe robusta um, mm-hmm. that they had encountered in Brazil. Um, The only problem is these two beans grow incredibly different uh, differently. Um, Robusta, you know, as its name implies, is a really hearty kind of all elbows sort of coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, It can withstand pounding sun. Um, It's got way more caffeine and caffeine's a natural insecticide. So um, it keeps uh the plant can defend itself from bugs. Um, Cafe Arabica can't do any of that, and it needs a cooling forest canopy in order to thrive. Um, so that's why for so long, um, Ethiopian coffee growing, which was done primarily in the um kind of in the high plains uh, of the country, um, in places like Jima, Sidamo, that coffee was predominantly grown um with uh many different plants around, with birds increasing some of the cross fertilization. Mm-hmm. And cafe arabica, the Ethiopian bean, grows really well right that, like that. Um what Italian agronomers attempted to do was impose uh what they called rationalist coffee growing on Ethiopia. Um, so that meant things like um Human-planted seeds, not uh, spontaneous semination. Um, It meant growing in gridded rows um, rather than haphazardly um, or in some of the circular patterns that were more locally common. Um, It meant planting according to calendars. So all of this sort of quantification. Um, The problem was that um, it simply didn't work. And the way they were trying to track if it worked was by tree height. Um, As though tree height would somehow prove a superior, um, whether you had a superior tree, but the harvesting load of coffee um, depends on things like the age of the tree, um, how often you're Mm -hmm. harvesting. Um, It doesn't depend on tree height, but that's exactly what the agronomers were obsessed with tracking. You can find these endless charts um where they're trying to determine the exact day that these newly planted Italian trees were going to be taller than the Ethiopian trees um and because it has nothing to do with how much coffee you actually get out of a tree i often think of it as unreasonable rationalism
0: that's wonderful uh, and you know again that's like that's like a like a hilarious and also terrifying harmony with like the measurement of human bodies and mm-hmm. and you know determinations of like you know what a superior stock would look like. More common, or at least I've heard about it more with um, German fascism. But you know, just like phrenology and measuring people's faces and foreheads and things like that, and like trying to find the perfect form of a person, and you know, having exactly that same logic applied to you know the space between the natural world and the human world, agriculture uh, makes a disturbing amount of sense. Uh, not just for fascism, but for any modern project. That's it's that's super true. fascinating.
1: The, um, the two are so closely l- related, I mean, not just in terms of the history, but even in terms of the etymology in Italian, mm-hmm. um, where um, for many years, uh, the Italian word for race was stirpe, which refers to a more culturally oriented version of race. Um, it was in 1938 with the introduction of the fascist race laws, um, which did, among other things, um, stripped continental Jews of their rights in Italy Um, forbade uh, marriage between um, Ethiopian Eritrean and Somali subjects and Italian colonists. Um, So it was then that um, Italy switched over from the term stirpe to razza. But of course, both of these terms, um, particularly razza, actually come from um, farming and from animal husbandry. Um, they originally were used to determine what razza of, say, rabbit you had before you. Um, oh. So all of these notions of breeding are deeply rooted in Italian understandings of farming.
0: I, I feel like I'm encountering a lot about learning how, you know, these these hallmarks of fascism that everybody's pretty familiar with, or at least uh, especially people who study fascism. You know, we think about. The control of people and the monitoring of people, and you know the the attempt to create the perfect member of whatever sub, ethnic, regional, national, religious group that this particular fascist movement happens to venerate. Um, but hearing about how that doesn't just have a confluence with an attempt to control the natural world, but is actually just like directly related to that same idea. You know, the the taming of something. And and the rearing of something, and you know how that just obviously directly connects to a eugenesis project.
1: It really does seem like one grew into the other. Um, yeah, looking at some of the early agronomers and basically colonialist manuals, uh, like colonial farmers' manuals for you know for rule. It almost, honestly, if I were going to look for early warnings of where fascism was going to go next, I would turn to those farming manuals um, because it's there um, in debates between these different, um, particularly the colonial agronomers. So here I'm thinking of, um, it was called the uh, Colonial Agricultural Institute based in Florence. It was really folks like Armando Magini, his uh, And then the man who came after him, Francesco Biggi, who were first working out these definitions of what is a good being and what is a bad being. And it's it's incredibly eerie to see all of these things going into the farming first um, and then just to know what comes afterwards.
0: That's incredibly fascinating. I I, I want to make sure before I forget that that we get back to something that you raised earlier, Mussolini's project and the Italian states project of uh draining this particular marsh. And um I I I assume I'm not alone in hearing the confluence between that and um the slogans of somebody like Donald Trump talking about draining the swamp. You know, like obviously there are swamps that are real swamps, and of you know, Washington, DC used to at least be partially marshland as well. Uh, but also as a metaphor of like a disordered, useless piece of land, uh, full of disordered, useless people. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if there's, if, if that kind of valence was present also in this attempt to reorganize and make useful, uh, this natural space.
1: I truly think it was. Um there is a type of order that is visually obvious to a western eye that I think mm-hmm. the Italian fascists were trying to put into the natural world. Um and I think uh in terms of what it would look like it's that it's that rationalist planting, the grids, the rows, Anything that can be quantified.
0: Yeah, the, the tallest, the straightest, yeah, the fastest.
1: Exactly. Um, and of course, what that occludes is what's actually at stake, um, whether it's ex- actually trying to increase coffee quantity for which you need what is a visually disorganized but actually biologically very harmonious ecosystem or whether it's an urban equivalent of that. Um, One urban project that I often think of is the fascist renovation of the Mercato Catema, which is the major market in Addis Ababa. There it's a similar grid system um, supplemented with uh, labeling of various market stalls. And it aimed to break up the power of the merchant Negradas. So those were sort of like the merchant lords who would, look after the market and all the different social relations within it. So the resulting market visually looks very organized, um, but the result is actually very unhygienic because in doing away with the merchant lords, nobody was responsible for day-to-day upkeep and that meant things like bathrooms. Um, So there is suddenly, uh, so for all that everything is now on a grid format, it also means that the amount of waste both uh you know particularly animal waste since this was it had a large uh, caravansalio sort of like a you know the market for like you know camels all of the mm-hmm. dromedaries and it created a huge mess <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's uh yeah it, it 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 does often seem like these um yeah these modernization rationalization schemes of which you know especially fascism in the 1930s, you know was particularly enamored with these you know hyper modernization and you know, like you said it's sort of like maybe an irrational rationalization. Yeah, usually it produces a sort of like perverse opposite of of the effect that even they were attempting to to achieve you know as disturbing and perverse as that intent was in the first place. right
1: It's true. We see it right there in that <laughs> what would you rather have something that is organized or something that is clean?
0: So I know that your work primarily deals with, um, you know, with with historical time, right? You know, with the time of the Italian state. Um, I'm curious about how you see these kinds of projects, these approaches to making an environment fit for, you know, fascist subjects, making fascist subjects fit for the new rationalized environment. Um, How does that play into the future, you know, into the 20th century or into the present in Italy, in Ethiopia.
1: So part of um, the fascist project in terms of Ethiopian environment was to take over land holdings of the former Ethiopian elite, um, predominantly the royal family. And uh, they did this based on the assumption that Ethiopian sharecroppers would simply stay in place and continue to work. Um the Ethiopian sharecroppers did not stay in place as the fascist uh, colonial ministers had predicted, but instead uh, traveled to dip, uh, traveled further inland.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, many mm-hmm. of them
1: joined the Ethiopian patriots resistance movement. Some of the legacy of rationalist farming that was introduced by the Italians, unfortunately, remains in place today on many of the larger Ethiopian coffee farms. Um, and it also remains in place um, in the grain po- uh, in uh, some of their approaches to grain. In their insistence on planting new strains of grain, um, one of which was named Ardito, so like one of the daring ones, which is actually a nickname <laughs> for the fascists, um, they were developing these new strains, you know, hyper-productive, hyper-strong strains of wheat before they started introducing these ideas um, into obstetric clinics uh clinics um most of those grains do not grow particularly well in ethiopia and in fact if you look at the records you could see declines on the set um, on the italian colonial settlements um the few settlements that were successful actually converted over to local grains in real time. So you actually see Italian colonists starting to grow teff, which is the base grain in injera, that sort of spongy sourdough flatbread that's the basis for so much of um, cuisine in the Horn of Africa. So interestingly, some of the legacy is that many Italians learned Ethiopian farming techniques.
0: (laughs) Yeah, again again this is, you know, this is that sort of like dialectical, ironic turn. Um, you know, where uh these policies have precisely their opposite intended effect. You know, people people learn instead these, you know, what it seems like the state would have recognized as like irrational or or um unnecessary or disorganized forms of living and eating and producing.
1: It re- it's a study in reversals. That's really mm-hmm. the history of farming under fascism.
0: That's extremely fascinating. So Professor Garvin, before we go, I'm wondering if you have um, something that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we get to.
1: I would love to offer a discount code to any of your listeners um, if they'd like to purchase Feeding Fascism through the University of Toronto Press website. It's Garvin, so G-A-R-V-I-N 25, And that will get you a 25% discount on the book if you're interested.
0: All right. Thank you so very much. And uh, I mean, I I want to read this book. I'm excited. Thank Um, you so much. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Garvin, for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, I hope that people take that opportunity to check this book out.
1: It was a pleasure chatting with you. So thank you so much for having me
0: on. Thank you so very much. It was a pleasure. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro outro and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell friends, family, and comrades about it. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. You can also get in touch with me at gmail at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. On Twitter at hist of the right, that's H I S T of the right, and fascism15 at twitter.com. All right, thanks, and I'll talk to you next week, continuing this mini series on fascism and the environment, talking about ecofascism in present day fascist and right wing movements.